pursue your purpose, speak your truth, deal with adult bullies, cope with failure, live beyond fear, establish values, set boundaries, move past trauma. These are all the themes in my Amazon bestseller, The Smart Girls Handbook. Tribers get in close. For 15 years, I have been searching for a book that didn't exist. So I am thrilled to share that I decided to write it. The Smart Girls Handbook is available to buy now from wherever you get your books and also in Canada, the United States of America, New Zealand and Australia. Everything we do is a response to something you have asked for and girl, have you been begging me for a book for years? Who is it for you? The reviews are outstanding. The press has been phenomenal and I am overwhelmed by the amazing support it has had already. This isn't my book, but our book. I realised after my talks around the world, women would be queuing for hours just to ask me one question. I didn't want them to just walk away, but to have a tangible source to have forever. And this is it. This is refreshing, never before read content that will inspire, motivate, empower, inform and entertain you. It's full of my personal development tips that have got me living as my most authentic and highest self, literally glowing from within. My most vulnerable moments and hilarious stories that will resonate with you. The Smart Girls Handbook is a celebration of womanhood and the book missing from your library. So grab your copy today, tag me on Instagram at smartgirltribe and I will send you an exclusive gift just to say thank you. Films tell us, books tell us, our parents tell us, our friends tell us what it takes to have the perfect relationship. I was curious, is this all a sham or is there some truth in it? Which is why I called the wildly popular author and licensed relationship therapist and clinical professional counsellor, Julie Minano, to provide the expert knowledge and tips so you know how to build a strong relationship from date one with someone. We also dive into the questions you had for her. When is the right time to sleep with someone for the first time? When is the right time to open up about exes and ask about them too? When is it too late to talk about your mental health or any issues you are going through and so much more? This episode I know is going to be insanely popular, so thank you Julie again. Hi Julie, thank you so much for coming on to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast today. Let's start at the beginning. When we are dating, what mindset should we have if we are after a strong and stable relationship? Well, um, I like to think of it as what happens when we're at the beginning of a friendship. I like to see things happen organically. And so what that would look like is if we have you know, basic attraction, compatibility, and shared values, that's a good foundation to start with. And of course, it takes some conversations to know, you know, if those things are aligned. Um, But once that happens, and we start talking about, you know, from my perspective as an emotion expert, is um, can these two people have emotion? intimacy. And what I like to say with that is that trust is built over time. So just as you would in a friendship, right? You just start to have conversations that start revealing little bits of yourself. And then you're paying attention to how it feels and how safe it feels to open up to this person. And same on the flip side, you know, is that person opening up to you and sharing with you in a way that's not too much too soon, right? If, if it's too much too soon, that's a sign that there's some anxiety going on. And if the person's never opening up, that's a sign of, a, of anxiety also, but just a different form of it. Um, so we want to, you know, just like I said, you want to you slow build 
to the point of feeling a felt sense of connection with the person. Emotional safety, which just to repeat is feeling accepted, not feeling rejected, feeling cared for, feeling responded to, feeling valued. Am I walking around the relationship with this person, even if we're dating, feeling these things on an appropriate level? Being a woman, Julie, and having spoken to so many of my friends in preparation for this episode, I know that as women, we have a tendency to make lists of the type of person we are after. So do you think, as the expert, these lists help or do they hinder us? Well, I don't think that there's a problem with the list as long as the list is doesn't it doesn't end there. And so lists are great for are our values aligned? You know, that that needs to be on board for the most part for a couple to um, have a sustainable relationship long term. Um, am I attracted to this person? That's important for the sexual connection of the relationship. But if it ends there and we're just checking boxes, we're missing the most important piece, which is the felt sense of emotional connection. And that's the piece that a lot of people are missing. Um, and that you can't you can put that on a list as emotionally connected. But that's not something that you know in your head. That's something you feel in your body and in your heart. So the, li the list is fine, but it can't stop there. The list is a great way to, you know, know what you're looking for as far as values and compatibility are concerned. There is something to be said, Julie, and I have read this a lot, that you have to be whole before you meet someone. Do you agree with this prior to getting into a relationship? Do we need a strong sense of self beforehand? Yeah, so ideally, that's going to set you up for the most success. But I also want to throw in there that if you're already in a relationship, you can learn to develop a sense of self. For any couple who is struggling in their current relationship, how can someone while in the relationship build a strong sense of self then? A strong sense of self is the ability to say, no, I know I have a, a good reason to be angry instead of oh, they're right, I'll just go along with whatever they're saying about me, right? And so what happens is, is if you aren't validate that in yourself, that anger is going to be stuck in you, and then it's going to show up in the relationship in a number of ways. So your lack of sense of self-worth is going to contribute to negative cycles. So building up your sense of self-worth as these negative cycles expose the holes in your self-worth Maybe you have a hard time setting boundaries because you don't think that you deserve to set boundaries. You have to work on that with yourself. What, what feeling am I trying not to feel by letting my partner call me names when we're in a fight? Mm -hmm. Or what feeling am I trying to not feel when I start yelling instead of speaking in a calm voice? Well, I'm trying to not feel unheard, right? And so as these things start to surface in the context of conflict with the partner, you start finding what do I need to work on personally? And then when you can start showing up in the relationship in a healthier way, your partner is going to start reacting to you differently. How can we figure out our romantic needs, Julie, and communicate those at the very beginning? Well, at the at first, it's really about, you know, just determining the fit. And then that will evolve into conversations where we're talking more about 
um, possibly going forward into more of a committed relationship. And I think that's the point at which we start talking about more serious things. Like, well, you know, the possibility is really here for me. I really enjoy being with you. I feel like we have a great connection. I feel like there's spark between us. But uh, there's there are some things that I need to feel safe and close to a long-term partner. And let's have a conversation about that. And, um, and that's when, you know, you would start um, communicating about the deeper issues. But really, more than anything, those needs are going to surface in conflict. So conflict is what taps into our unmet needs. Because, um, and it's not necessarily conflict, but it's the way that a couple is managing conflict. So the relationship isn't real, really. You don't know what their relationship even looks like until there's been some conflict and we're able to see how am I managing conflict and how is this person managing conflict. So if two, if you're dating someone and then all of a sudden someone has to break plans and that causes a big fight, then that's when emotional needs are going to show up, which is the way you communicated it to me or the way you didn't communicate that you couldn't show up left me feeling alone and not really valued. And we need to talk about that because I can't, I can't walk around a relationship feeling like I'm not even valuable enough. And then the other person says, well, you're not understanding that I was in an emergency situation. So do you see how these conversations are emerging from real issues that come up? That's when we, we get the opening into the the heart of the matter is, is when it's alive. What powerful stuff, Julie. Now, for a lot of women, it is easier to be physically vulnerable at the beginning as opposed to emotionally vulnerable. So do you think being physically vulnerable, we'll say, early on, really early on, impacts how the relationship is going to develop? Well, it really depends on the person. You know, how are you going... How are you going to be impacted by the experience? And more importantly, if you do have an experience where you have sex with someone that feels somewhat premature to you, then that conversation needs to happen, which is, you know, here's what's happening for me. I, you know, we jumped into this and I'm feeling a little discomfort around it. It's not necessarily a problem to be solved in that moment. It's just a transparency and an authenticness of the conversation. Um, But I know I really love, you know, what Esther Perel says that single sex and having sex with someone at the beginning of the relationship is not anything close to having sex with someone once the relationship has been established. So we can't, you know, we have to remember that those experiences are two people who really don't even know each other and really haven't even bonded emotionally. So yes, they've bonded sexually, whether or not that was a good experience, but it's later on when the, emo- when the emotional vulnerability shows up that we really start to see what the sexual relationship is going to be like. Do you think it is better to wait than Julie? Well, it's not my place to say what, you know, what everybody should do, but I would, you know, I would say that for most people, it's probably better to wait because we're waiting for trust to build. You know, some people are are fine just enjoying each other physically and there's no downside for them. Um, Now, when you have alcohol involved, then you want to say, well, you know, why does this person need alcohol to get through this situation? So maybe there's actually some anxiety around that. 
But um, for, for most women, especially, you know, there needs to be some safety. This person isn't going to, I'm not going to feel used by this person. I'm not going to feel um, rejected or, you know, in any kind of um, shame. This person isn't going to shame me. And you don't really know that. So you want to have some sense of this person is a decent person. Diving into trust then, how can you, Julie, build trust if you have been let down, abandoned, rejected, cheated on in the past even? Well, trust only happens through repeated experiences of something new. The important piece here is having this conversation with this person at the at the beginning or when things start to get, you know, go really going and start to become more serious, which is, look, I have to be honest with you. I've been really wounded in the past and there's a wall there and I, I'm very open to that wall going down. There's nothing I would rather have than being able to trust. But, you know, is that something that you can be patient with? Because I feel very, very confident in the fact that, you know, when I meet, when I have an experience where I feel really safe and like I'm not going to be hurt, that that wall will come down. But is that something, you know, you can, you can wait for? And if the person says no, then they're being honest. And that's, there's something to be said for that too. And then when you are in the relationship, Julie, what steps can you take to build that strong and stable relationship? The two most important things I think that lay the foundation are um, having, each partner needs to really have self-compassion and the ability to self-regulate because we can't really work on anything without self-compassion and the ability to self-regulate. It's going to mean that you don't just throw your hands up in the air and give up on yourself every time you, you mess up. From that, then we start looking at this communication. We, we want to look for healthy communication, meaning that couples aren't getting stuck in negative cycles. And a negative cycle looks like one partner protests, the other partner gets defensive, the other partner feels invalidated and protests more, the other partner feels even more attacked and starts to get angry and then might fight back, then the other partner gets even more angry, then they get in a fight, then one partner ends up shutting down, and then there's a period of disconnect, the issue gets pushed under the rug. So that's just a kind of summarized version of a negative cycle. And if you can start the relationship or even, you know, if you've been in you know, stuck in negative cycles for a long time, what you have to do is you have to learn to step out of that pattern. You have to learn to get out of those patterns through behavior changes and replace the, uh, the, the protests and the defensiveness with new behaviors and new way to communicate your needs and your feelings. Then we start to build up the intimacy because negative cycles erode intimacy and we start building up sexual intimacy and then we make sure that's healthy. And from all of this, couples typically have, you know, the ability to kind of logistically go through their lives together and solve problems together without getting into huge escalated fights. And, and huge escalated, you know, fights do happen even in the healthiest couples from time to time. And something comes up that their stress is high and their capacity is low, but... We want to see in healthy couples, we want to see it happening less often. It gets less intense and faster repair. Relationships have always been difficult, Julie, but I personally feel that relationships are becoming harder and harder to 
navigating in my experience even considering social media for some people that can be a very tempting source of evil so I would love to ask you what questions can we ask at the very beginning to build that strong and stable relationship and when should we be asking those questions? Well, let me think about how to answer that. Um, it, again, I like I like for things to sort of come up organically. So if someone, you know, shows up to the date and they're late, you know, then and they are late because they just witnessed a horrible accident and they're, you know, tense and upset because of what they just saw, that's an opening for asking emotional questions. It's just showing up organically, right? Um, so that would be look like, oh my gosh, how are you doing with this? You know, what's going on here? And that might lead into, you know, some deeper questions about that person's emotional state because clearly that person is probably not going to be able to engage about normal topics until, you know, they're able to feel more settled around this event. Um, but I think that... Um, you know, you do want to know someone's emotional history, right? Uh, when does that, when does that happen? It happens when there's a level of trust between the two people that they can have this conversation without feeling uncomfortable with that. I, well, uncomfortable is, is not the right word because some people, um, you know, some conversations are uncomfortable to have, even when they're, it's good for them to be had. But when there, there's a safety to be vulnerable, right? When you know, hey, this person, I'm not pushing them too far. We, we've connected enough that it feels like they're going to be safe feeling vulnerable. And then you kind of feel it out. And then you might say something like, you know, let me ask you something. When you were growing up and you would get sad or upset, like who, who comforted you? You know, this is kind of learning about someone's emotional history or who, who did you go to for support when you were growing up? And if the answer is no one, and if the answer is, well, I just got in trouble if I cried, then you, you know, you need to know that about that person because there's a good chance if those experiences haven't been healed and addressed, they're definitely going to show up in a relationship with you down the line. So it is important to ask questions, you know, to be curious about someone's not not just, you know, their aspirations and their goals. Those are super important, too. But, you know, um, what happened when, when you messed up? Were you shamed? Because that might show up in the relationship as, if I bring up a concern to you, are you going to feel like I'm accusing you of being, you know, a bad person and a bad partner? And are you going to react to your childhood experience instead of reacting to just this kind of normal relationship concern? So you really want to know how that was handled. You might ask it about other relationships in the past, too, that have um, possibly been um, impactful to that person, which many are. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And speaking of uncomfortable conversations, Julie, when is the right time, if it exists, to bring up former flames, to bring up ex-partners? I would be concerned if, if a person just refused or didn't want to talk about their past relationships. I, I think that would be a 
you know, maybe not super early on in the relationship, but if not, if over time they weren't willing to open up, I mean, that's a part of them. That's a part of their life. That's a part of transparency and authenticity. I would see it as a, as a problem if somebody wasn't wanting to share, you know, here's, here's how this relationship worked. Here's how it was strong. Here's how it wasn't. Here's why it didn't work out at the end. Here are some things that I feel resentful about. Here are some things I miss. I mean, these are just parts of who we are. And two mature people, I, I think, really should be able to have that conversation, um, even if it's uncomfortable. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, yeah, I would, I would have, to, I would really need to know if you're not comfortable sharing about these past, very impactful and significant parts of your life. Why? What are you? What are you afraid will happen if you? And whatever. So what you're doing is you're kind of you know, closing up and not speaking about it, well, that pattern will show up in another area. Obviously, Julie, someone wouldn't want to find themselves in a relationship with someone not knowing their romantic history. So how many dates is almost too many dates to not have that conversation? Well, I don't know that there's a number of dates that I can't really put a number on that, but I can say the timing needs to be right. And again, have we built up to this level of have we had small experiences of sharing parts of ourselves and asking some questions about this person's past, which is totally appropriate to do? If date number six and you're talking about going forward into a commitment and you're saying, you know, I, I'm curious about your past um, relationships and they say, oh, I don't want to talk about that. I mean, that's that's a real that's that's not a good sign, I would say. Mm -hmm. Again, that pattern, I mean, it, even if they say, you know what, here's what I'm comfortable sharing right now. Here's what feels comfortable. And I, I, I think as, you know, time goes by, I'd probably feel more comfortable sharing more. But, and again, it's kind of, I want you to kind of think of this more like a, like, and it's, for some reason, it's easier for us to kind of think of these things in the context of a friendship. How far into the friendship would you be willing to be more vulnerable with this friend. Well, there, it's just how long does it take you to feel safe? I love how you have explained that, Julie. Something else that I would love to unpack is I was reading a quote actually today saying women are not rehab centers for men. And this is something I can really relate to as can my friends because, for example, I have found myself going on dates and then walking away exhausted, having given so much, because I do feel that there are a lot of men who perhaps maybe have some kind of feminine wound and then women naturally being very nurturing and maternal want to help or fix or repair them in some way. So I would just love to unpack that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, if, if a woman is, you know, there's always this line, right? There's a line between caring about someone and wanting to help them be their best self and in the service of caring about them and wanting the relationship to thrive. And then there's taking responsibility for someone else's healing. So if a woman is taking responsibility for a man's healing, that woman is every bit as wounded as the man. So that woman has work to do. Why am I needing to go in and take all the responsibility for the relationship? Um, you know, I talk 
I I specialize in in attachment issues. So what I like to say is, you know, the anxious partner is watering the plant with a fire hose and the avoidant partner is not watering the plant at all because the anxious partner is over there watering the plant with a water hose, I mean with a fire hose. And so the anxious partner needs to step back from watering at all and let the avoidant partner show up and realize, oh, if I don't water this, it's going to die. I need to figure something out here. And I don't want to, you know, that's a lot of times anxious partners are just working too hard. They're working too hard. So if there's a, a conflict, for example, and the anxious partner is over here going, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about this. This has to be talked through. This is what's healthy, healthy communication. And the avoidant partner is now going, well, I don't want to talk about it. That's uncomfortable. And let's just push it under the rug. Or you're always seeing me as the bad guy. And instead, the anxious partner shows up and says, you know what? There's nothing I can do to make you talk about it. But I also can't feel safe and close to you until this gets resolved. So I'm going to be over here doing my own thing and creating some space for the avoidant partner to actually find a need and and be able to show up and take responsibility for their own needs and feeling like, okay, wait, I got to step up here if something's going to get resolved. And does this make sense? Am I I explaining it? This makes total sense, Julie. And it feels as though you're describing, I have been told it's called a situationship. My um, situationship I found myself in, I was very much in that particular situation, the anxious Um, and this person was very much the avoidant. And I know there are a lot of women who conduct themselves in the same way, just very clucky women. We love a project. We love to dig our nails into something and we almost think, oh, I can make or I can help this person become the person, the man they want to be. So no, this completely, I'm relating to this a a lot and I know my friends will as well. Avoidant partners, they have no idea what to do. They're over there going, I'm giving that sun and soil. What what else can I do? Because they've never experienced water before. They've never had water. They've never seen anybody giving water. This is the emotional piece. So if someone is not coming along who's neutral and not part of that negative cycle or they're not seeking resources, they might not never learn what the water looks like. So there's two pieces to it. A, they have to be willing, but B, they have to get the right help. They have to get the right knowledge to know how to actually show up to fill in that gap. And it's, it's a lot of times we see it as, well, they must have not really cared. But more, more likely than not, it's they, they just didn't know how to deal with their own emotions and to, and to ship in the right way. For anyone listening to this then, Julie thinking, oh my goodness, this is me. I'm actually the avoidant, not the anxious. What steps can they take to build a, or make sure that their next relationship is strong and stable? Okay, so this is, this needs to happen. This person needs to learn a to access their emotions. Remember how I said self-regulation is so important. Um, Well, I like the analogy of the window of tolerance. So we have a window, right? And in this window, we're we're emotionally present, we're engaged, we're relatively calm, or, or we're excited or joyful, appropriate to the situation. We can even be annoyed, but we're we're in we're not dysregulated. We are able to communicate effectively 
we're, we're not robots, you know. But then if we go above the window, we're completely dysregulated. We're angry, over angry. We're irritated in a way that we can't seem to separate from. And we're, you know, maybe yelling or being kind of aggressive or whatever. And then below the window, we're cut off. We're numbed out. We're disconnected. And I need for avoidant partners to be able to come up into the window of tolerance. That means they need to learn how to access their actual emotions. So in that window of tolerance, we have a balance of head and heart. We're able, the anxious partner who they typically are overwhelmed with their emotions, right? To the point of they're not actually vulnerable. They're just emotional. And those two are not those two are not the same and they need help managing this huge emotional experience. But avoidant partners need to learn how to access the emotional experience. So the way to access their emotions is through their bodies. They have to, that's the best way to get an avoidant partner to access it is help me understand right now, as you describe feeling upset, where it's sitting in your body. And they slowly start, this is somatic work, they slowly start to recognize signs of emotion. And then they slowly start to put words and names to that emotion. And when they can do that, they can get the felt experience on board and they can put the names, then they can start communicating those emotions. And when they can have awareness of this stuff in themselves, that creates empathy and the ability to recognize the awareness in their partner. And when you have recognition of your emotional pain, you're able to take in comfort. If you're not, if you're not connected to it, the comfort doesn't even, you know, register to you because you don't, you don't have connection to the pain, right? It's like having, you know, a broken leg, but you're on so many drugs that you can't feel the pain. And someone's over here going, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You're in pain. What can I do to help your pain? And you're like, well, I don't feel any pain, you know? Mm-hmm. So it and then so what it does is it helps that person with that emotional awareness. An avoidant partner can learn to reach and respond to bids for comfort and emotional connection, emotional comfort and emotional connection. And what about for all of those who are anxious and listening in, Julie? What can they do? Because. I was talking earlier about my situationship, but I am exactly the same. No matter if you are a friend of mine or a family member, if you are going through something, I will send you all of the podcast episodes. I will send you recommendations for certain therapists. I will be over and I will be saying, you know what, we can talk this out for however long you need. I will be sending you the books. I will be sending you the articles, but you're completely right I'm very emotional as opposed to vulnerable and I do feel everything I'm the person that if I see someone crying I will then cry so for everyone listening and relating to this because it can be very hard to navigate and it can be very tricky what would you recommend they do for anyone listening thinking oh my gosh up until now I have just been describing myself as an empath when actually this is more this is um there's a greater issue deep-rooted issue um here that needs to be unpacked well we don't want to take away that loving compassionate beautiful part of anxious partners right it's a beautiful beautiful part in fact i i made a, a reel on instagram a few a couple months ago that was enormously popular that was love your anxious partner and then it just went on to to talk about all the beautiful things about the anxious partner um, 
But what happens is, is anxious partners are walking around, like I said, fixing problems, let's say go back to the plant analogy, with a fire hose. And we need to learn how to give that anxious partner a garden hose or a, a oh my gosh, what do you call them? A pot of water. So you're not, you're not completely removing the water and the compassion and the love from this person, but you're helping them regulate it. So it's not overwhelming to either partner. So the question is, what is coming from compassion and empathy and love and all these beautiful things? And what is coming from anxiety? That's when, you know, it's probably not going to be helpful for either party. Sometimes, you know, some of it will be helpful, but it's going to come at a big, big cost. And that cost is going to be your energy and, it, and it's, you know, it could potentially, you know, overwhelm the other person. But so I, another thing I like to say is anxious partners and avoidant partners, when offering comfort and connection, need to learn to put one foot in the other person or one leg, let's say, and keeping the other leg over for themselves. So you're not giving all of you. You just kind of have to back up and allow the possibility of them continuing to suffer while still con con contributing with comfort. There, it's kind of like, you know, if you um, have a partner who just had a surgery and is in a lot of pain, there's nothing that you can do to take that pain away. We can't take other people's physical pain away, but we can be there to give them soup or we can bring, be there to bring them their meds, you know, every four hours when they need them because they can't get out of bed themselves. That's, that's being a helpful, comforting presence. For you personally, Julie, being the expert, what would a strong and stable relationship look like? Um, if you want to be in a healthy relationship, here's what I think it would look like. Having fun with the person, right? And Enjo just enjoying each other's company, feeling at ease. If you're, if you're feeling tense around someone like, oh, I wonder what, what they're thinking right now, or oh, who's going to decide to go to the restaurant? Is that going to cause an argument? And you're, not, you're just not feeling settled. That's not, that's not healthy. You want to be at ease with this person. Um, do you have a healthy sex life? I mean, healthy sexuality is so important to uh, the relationship, especially if it's important to just one of the partners. Are there couples out there who don't need hot sex lives to be happy? Sure. But usually there's one partner that is really needing that type of connection. Um, do both people have outside support systems? It's not healthy at all to rely on each other for all of your emotional needs to be met. There's a very big difference between emotional needs and attachment needs. Emotional needs are, um, I can feel okay with myself. I can validate myself. I can have compassion for myself. I can understand myself um, and soothe myself. And attachment needs are, I need to know that you care about me and that you can validate me and that you can appreciate me to feel close to you. Not to feel okay with me, but feel, to feel close to you. You know, there, there are things in my own very happy relationship um, that I wouldn't go to my husband to. I'd go to my best friend for because I know she's going to be able to empathize more with it and show up a little bit more. So um, when couples are relying on each other solely for emotional needs, it's enmeshed, it's too much pressure on the system, and somehow it's going to fall apart at some point. Um, you, couples who are healthy are able to tolerate disappointment. That means that they don't expect perfection along the way. They know their partner is going to let them down sometimes. They know their partner, um, there are going to be 
times in the relationship where they just don't see eye to eye and you kind of have, it's like, again, I'll quote her Perel. It's not, it's a paradox to be managed, not a problem to be solved. Sometimes we just have to sit with disappointment without letting that disappointment cross over into resentment. Lots of decisions just need time and space and trying to force them isn't really something that, um, always turns out. It, it can often turn out to backfire. Um, and, then, and then both partners are able to self-regulate. Both partners are able to take responsibility for their own nervous systems in, in tough moments so that they're not showing up in a destructive way. So it's kind of like mad. I feel mad. It really hurts. It's really uncomfortable. But throwing this brick out the window and breaking the window is a really bad idea, right? So couples are, we, I don't want couples throwing bricks at each other when they're, you know, mad and dysregulated. So we need, I need for them to, again, feel heated, but I can dysregulate enough to where we're not going to be, you know, getting in especially violence or, you know, really hurtful words. That's not, that's not healthy. And again, there's always room for repair. But part of repair is these events, especially the really damaging ones, uh, discontinue. They don't keep, you know, they're not something that's an ongoing problem. That's part of repair too. So, Can you explain what an attachment rupture is, please? Yes. So we have attachment ruptures and we have attachment injuries. A rupture is um, a moment where uh, you feel, you feel let down, you feel unappreciated, you feel invalidated, um, but it's kind of like weather, like the, the climate of the, in the overall climate of the relationship, you know, you're valuable An attachment injury is when you feel so pervasively let down by your partner that it really shakes up your ability to trust them. They, they, you, you felt let down in a crucial moment. They didn't show up for you um, when you went to the hospital in labor because they had to get a couple of things done at work. You know, something like really, really big affairs, um, substance abuse, chronic substance abuse where the other person isn't getting help. That's an attachment injury. Can you explain, Julie, what co-regulating is? Yes, absolutely. So co-regulating is when one, one, let's say both partners are dysregulated and they're starting, or one part, one or both partners are, are, are upset, triggered, they're outside of their window, one that means they're up in an irritable state or they're just kind of numbed out. And the other partner is able to be regulated enough, to, to self-regulate enough to show up as a comforting presence to the other partner and soothe that partner back into the regulation, meaning come provide enough comfort. Um, that doesn't mean they always can. That doesn't mean that only go to. You know, we need to be able to self-regulate. Obviously, if, if two, if both partners need to be able to self-regulate in order to be able to show up equally to co-regulate in that moment when your partner just doesn't have the capacity. But in, in moments, one partner, you know, might be the one to, to show up. It will need to be the one to show up. We don't have an opportunity for co-regulation if both partners are already dysregulated. What are some sentences we can use, Julie, to validate someone else's emotions? Well, um, I'm trying to think of some things that I would say, you know, to my 
to my husband or children. It's just like, if my, you know, one of my kids is, is hurt because of something that happened at school, I'm just like, you know what? That sucks. Like just using like emotionally laden words that you're actually like able to tap into them and kind of feel that. And remember when you were in middle school and there were mean girls and, and, you know, just show up with some, you know, you don't want to be a robot and say, that's really hard. I can only imagine how hard that is for you. It's like, wow, I am so sorry you had to deal with that. I remember going through that and it is, it's just a terrible, yucky, sick feeling. And I'm really sorry. I think it's going to get better as you get older, but that doesn't make it hurt any less right now to hear me say that. What is something, Julie, you wish more people knew when it comes to romantic relationships? Oh gosh. Um, I wish more people knew their negative cycles, hands down. Um, even if you don't know your attachment style and you really relate to one or the other, forget about that, throw it out the window. It's what's the pattern and what are the unmet attachment needs? It would be, to tie into that, it would be what are relationship attachment needs? What do we need as humans? And we all have basically the same needs, although some people have needs that are prioritized over others depending on uh, previous impactful relationships in their life, typically during childhood. For example, anxious partners need more validation because they just didn't get enough of it growing up. Um, and avoidant partners need to know that they can be successful. So uh, circling back, we need to, I wish people understood these are my attachment needs and they're not codependency. When these attachment needs aren't met, that's what's going on underneath the surface of conflict. Amazing. I also end the podcast with two questions, Julie. The first being, what is your favorite quote or the mantra you live by? Make me a channel of your peace would be the mantra I live by. Um, and my favorite quote, oh, I just love this. I don't, I can't, I don't know if I can fully explain it, but I love this Einstein quote that is, um, everything collapses, the center never holds. Wonderful. We've never had someone quote Einstein before. And what books and or podcasts on this subject would you recommend to our audience, Julie? Um, okay. So the first would be Hold Me Tight by Sue Johnson. Um, that book is a really good introduction to a couple's negative cycle. It's a classic. In fact, Sue Johnson created the modality of therapy called Emotionally Focused Therapy that I practice. Um, so that's a great book. Um, podcast. I really like Esther Perel. I think that she integrates a little bit more into, you know, the, the way I practice with the EFT model is very emotionally laden. And I think she integrates more kind of how, how do we differentiate from each other while we're staying emotionally connected? I think if we, you know, the Sue Johnson material is, is amazing, but she doesn't really talk about that line between connection and enmeshment. And so I think bringing in the Esther Perel piece and, and her focus on the importance of sexuality and our ability to be able to kind of tap into our erotic selves for the overall health of the relationship and when we're not that actually that pattern is going to show up in other parts of the relationship so I like her I do wow well what a beautiful and insightful 
conversation. Thank you for coming on to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast today, Julie. No, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast. I am your host, Scarlett B. Clark, award-winning founder and CEO of Smart Girl Tribe, the UK's number one female empowerment organization, host of this top-rated podcast, the Smart Girl Tribe podcast, and author. You are my community, my family, so come and follow along for more female empowerment and personal development in our private Facebook group, the Smart Girl Tribe Society, or on Twitter or Instagram at Smart Girl Tribe.